You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP: Empowering Pharmacists, Transforming Aging. This is Michelle Lamb, one of your co-hosts for ASCP's Senior Rx Radio. I am so looking forward to today's episode where it is my great honor to interview TJ Griffin. TJ Griffin is SVP of LTC Operations and the Chief Pharmacy Officer at Pharmerica. He is a seasoned healthcare executive with over 30 years in long-term care and retail pharmacy management. In his current role, he helps deliver on the Pharmerica promise of care, commitment, and collaboration by maintaining the highest standards in the industry through innovative pharmacy operations and clinical excellence. During his time, he's held several positions at Pharmerica, starting out as a pharmacy director, moving his way up to regional pharmacy director, and then vice president of operations. He is also very active with the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, having served as co-chair of their DEA task force and vice chairman of ASCP Foundation, and he's also served on Operation Warp Speed. TJ, welcome to our program. Well, thank you. It's, it's an honor to be here, Michelle. I am so glad to have you, and let's just go ahead and take a dive in. Tell me a little bit more about your role at Pharmerica and perhaps your typical day. Well, Michelle, it's uh, so good to be with you and to talk to fellow consultant pharmacists across the country. As my role as uh, head of operations and clinical for for Pharmerica, my role is really just to support all the wonderful people who are out in the field, taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. You know, we have 115 pharmacies in 46 states and over 250 consultant pharmacists out in the field every day, working so hard to to make sure that all of the nurses that we work with have all the information that they need, that uh, the meds are available when they need them, and that uh, we're just a, a supreme resource for all the skilled nursing facilities, senior living sites. And, you know, we also uh, service over 2,000 group homes for individuals with developmental disabilities. And it's just really an honor to be uh, the voice of those out in the field and make sure they have all the support and tools that they need to do their job successfully to take care of folks. That's really what my role is. Wonderful. Thank you. You mentioned a couple different practice settings. I know you have facilities, skilled nursing, group homes, et cetera. I saw on your biography that Pharmerica also has some roles in drug and alcohol rehab facilities. That's a unique setting. Could you tell me a bit more about it? Yeah, Michelle, that is a growing, unfortunately, with the opioid crisis that we've been dealing with and the actual spike during the pandemic, there has been a greater need for close ties with pharmacy, with drug treatment centers, drug and alcohol rehab centers, and uh, mental health facilities. So that is an area we've uh, really started to branch out in. We're learning every day about those patients and their needs and the special treatments that they use. And it has been a very much growing part of our uh, portfolio, I would say, in the last year and a half uh, in particular. So there is uh, several dozen that we take care of across the country. And it's very rewarding work. And you really have to be on top of your game because those folks move in. Sometimes they're moving in under a crisis situation. Most of those facilities across the country are not licensed to have e-kits like you might have in a skilled nursing facility. So the pharmacy has to be very prompt and able to uh, provide quick services for those patients with quick turnaround because they're coming in so much with crisis. 
Now, sometimes you may have a, a prescriber that's on site that you may sell some house stock to directly to the prescribers so they can get started. But generally, that's it's still patient-specific dosing in those facilities. So there are some states that do allow uh, limited emergency kits in, in those types of places of locations. But generally, uh, it's just being on top of your game because those folks come in and in crisis and, and need their medications you know, just as fast as someone who's being admitted to a skilled nursing facility. Thank you for sharing that. I know it's an, an important and emerging role of the pharmacist in that type of setting. It really is. And there's a business model that's kind of taken off for providers as well. And so they're cropping up. It's very important that you do your due diligence with the, the folks that you're working with and make sure that they have all the licensing that's required. And, you know, there's a lot of really good companies out there and they're, they're, looking for, they're looking for help and they're looking for expertise and they're turning to the pharmacy for that. So it's exciting times. I agree. Thank you, TJ. You have really an impressive title at Pharmerica. Thank you for, <laughs> for sharing your expertise. What, what does a typical day look like for the senior vice president, chief pharmacy officer? I want to hear more. Really, you know, my day starts, I just, I check in. Uh, we have great dashboards that we were able to view. And I just check in with the pharmacies across the country as the time shifts all the way across the country and make sure that uh, there's no... Uh, technical difficulties, that there's no uh, crises that we're unaware of. And I like to check in and see how they did the day before. We're really proud of our metrics at Pharmerica. We have a 96% on-time delivery. We have a 99.998% order accuracy. Our orders go out 99% complete. Generally, the only reason an order might not go out complete, as you're well aware, might be a clarification or an allergy that you're trying to clear up. So, we want to make sure our, our pharmacies are maintaining those good metrics. So I'll be looking at those metrics. Typically, I will also check in uh, with each of my uh, vice presidents of operation during the mornings, and as well as my clinical team. We have a really good uh, clinical team here at Pharmerica, and I just need to know what's happening out there. I'll also check in with the inventory crew to make sure there isn't any drug shortages that we need to you know, deal with and work around, as well as specialty programs that we may have in place that I need to check in on. And then there's just the general government relations work that also that you have to do. I'm very, I work very closely with our government crew. There could be certain state level uh, initiatives that are going on with government affairs, whether it's the new PBM laws in Florida or trying to get nurse practitioner rules changed in Texas. There's always something going on in government affairs that I'm also touching upon. So uh, every day brings a little something different, but uh, you have to check in with each of your team members. And again, we have five pharmacies in Hawaii. So, you know, their day doesn't start till one o'clock in the afternoon. So sometimes you, you get a little excitement uh, all the way out in Hawaii. So that's, that's, interesting. that's generally what we're doing. Gosh, TJ, you're balancing a lot of different tasks as well as time zones. Well done. <laughs> yeah, we even service up to Alaska. We service Alaska out of our uh, Seattle pharmacy. So you know, we're, we're flying stuff up to uh, Alaska a couple times a day. Okay. So you've mentioned some of the metrics and, and responsibilities of oversight of your dispensing pharmacies. Talk to me about the consulting side. I believe you mentioned you had over 260 pharmacists report to you. Yes. So uh, we monitor the F tags, we want to know where all of our surveys are going on in our facilities across the country. So we monitor and measure uh, how our facilities are doing. 
we keep track of all their past regulatory F tags and make sure that we are creating programs and helping them make sure that they don't have uh, repeats of those F tags. So we're constantly creating clinical programs, clinical initiatives, clinical newsletters uh, that we'll put out to uh, facilities. We also will keep track and survey what are the survey trends that are going on. You know, now that uh, psychotropics, for instance, are uh, under the microscope, we're tracking the tags associated with that. And we send out little nuggets. We call them the F-tag focus. We have an F-tag focus newsletter, if you will. And that goes out uh, to our customers and to our account managers across the country so that they can begin to have those talking points and and let facilities know what we're seeing across the country from a survey perspective. So it's always something different and every state can be a little different and have their own little nuances to to how they're surveying uh, facilities. But we're in constant communication uh, with with our consultants, monitoring their consultant reports, monitoring uh, formularies and adoptions, we like to limit uh, the non-covered charges that our facilities see. So, you know, especially right now, uh, we're dealing with all the changes, as you're aware of, all the insulins, you know, with uh, the non-branded biologics, as they're calling them. They're not really generics. So uh, there's lots of changes going on in the insulin world, both with pricing and with brands and the biosimilars. So just making sure everyone is, has all the education they need to explain to their customers and patients, you know, exactly what's going on, you know, from a clinical perspective. So I have a, a tight uh, corporate clinical team here at Pharmerica. I have a director of corporate uh, clinical programs, uh, Steve Creasy. Him, he and two others here just from a corporate level are just continually monitoring and creating different educational materials for our teams out in the field so that they can, you know, just stay on top of their game. Thank you. And for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with what an F-tag is, can you talk a little bit about the process of a state survey and maybe what an F-tag is? And perhaps if there's one that stands out in your mind as pretty scary and needed to be addressed right away. I I would say all F-tags are scary because uh, facilities don't want them. But every year and sometimes twice a year, depending on the state or depending on the star level or regulatory state that a, a skilled nursing facility is in, surveyors will come from the state and they come and they will spend basically the entire work week at a facility checking everything from the temperature of their broccoli to does a nurse wait uh, enough time between uh, puffs of an inhaler. So it's a very clinical, very uh, surgical uh, dissection of all the activities that are going on within a skilled nursing facility. And so there are a plethora of different rules and regulations. Those are the the different uh, tags that can happen. There's the state uh, operations manual, which is really important. Obviously, that's the, the Bible for facilities to follow to stay in compliance. And any any variation from that state operations manual can result in these different level of tags. And so an F tag is the kind of the normal level of tag that you would see if a facility has a non-compliance, they're usually given a certain amount of time to what they call clear that tag, which means just fix what the state says they're not doing correctly. And that's where a consultant pharmacist can come in. Obviously, not every tag is associated with pharmacy, but you know your, your consultant pharmacist in the facility really is their regulatory watchdog on all things. And so, Oftentimes, when a consultant pharmacist visits a skilled nursing facility, 
they'll check on things that aren't necessarily pharmacy related just to make sure they're in compliance with with other areas. So an FTAG can result in a fine for a facility. It can result uh, anywhere from a one-time fine to daily fines until they're cleared. So it's really important uh, that we try to limit a facility's exposure to those kinds of non-compliance. And your consultant is really the most vital piece in, in working hand-in-hand with uh, the administrator and the directors of nursing services to ensure that uh, they don't get tags. Thank you for that expanded detail. You mentioned in your, your intake interview that our seniors deserve the best. And, and I can see that you're really, you and the team are working to make that happen. You know, uh, you know, there is a real focus right now on the use of psychotropic medications within facilities. It's been in the newspapers. We've had Senate hearings on it. We've just released, uh, in fact, uh, Michelle, our new psychotropic stewardship program out to our customers. And it's been a very thoughtful process. We've taken a solid almost two years to put it together. And it's really a model for nursing facilities to, to ensure that we're using medications, especially psychotropic medications appropriately, and that we're following all the, the rules and regulations that, that go with it. So we've been really excited at the uptake uh, with the program as we've uh, released it out to our customers. And it's gotten uh, a lot of good uptick and good uh, reception from our facilities. And they appreciate uh, us honing in on something that is really top of mind with the regulators. And so excited about that program. I think we have a model antibiotic stewardship program that we have for our customers as well. And we released last year an opioid stewardship program that isn't so much about opioid use disorder or opioid diversion as much as the proper use of of pain medications. And so obviously we get into those other areas, but uh, those are our three big releases that we've had the last three years to really help, help facilities focus on things that are very topical and as, as well as very important to the health and safety of those that they take care of. Thank you. You've mentioned this job title of consultant pharmacist. I know some of our listeners may work in settings outside of long-term care or consulting. What tips would you have for an aspiring consultant pharmacist that wants to do that type of work? That's a great question. And uh, we I get that question a lot. And what we have done, especially with students in pharmacy school, Long-term care is just not something that's necessarily taught in pharmacy school, to be honest. Certainly, there's geriatric pharmacy classes, and we certainly know how to, how to dose and, and use geriatric medications. But the actual laboratory setting, if you will, or there's very few externships out there in, in long-term care. So for students or new pharmacists, uh, I highly recommend contacting a, a long-term care pharmacy and doing a job shadow with a consultant pharmacist. You can learn a lot during that shadowing process. And some states require that to even get your consultant license. I think Florida is one of those. So I think job shadowing a consultant pharmacist, and there is, you know, through ASCP, we can hook you up with uh, any innumerable amount of consultants who would love to have you tag along and let them show you what they do every day. It's a real high focus on, obviously, the proper use of, of medications in the geriatric population. So you're going to want to knuckle down and study the, you know, the geriatric dosing, the lab, the lab values that are required to be monitored in the geriatric population. And there are uh, certificate programs out there that are also available to you. Most of our consultant pharmacists are homegrown. 
And so they've spent some time in the pharmacy and have worked their way into consulting. But consultant pharmacist job is so rewarding. You know, that is probably has the largest longevity of any of the pharmacists that are in our system are our consultants. And uh, they really are the face of the company. They're the highest rated service that we get on our on our uh, client surveys are our consultant pharmacists. So they're just a real important element to how we provide care in all of our care settings. Some states require uh, consultant pharmacist reviews in the assisted living environment, not necessarily monthly, but quarterly in many, many states. And it's just as important in that. And if you think about the customers and patients we're serving, their average age is 83 years old in a skilled nursing facility. They're going to be on 10 plus medications and assisted living. They're going to be on, you know, six to seven medications. And even in our IDD uh, group home setting, those patients as well, those, those residents are also on nine to 11 medications. And so it's really taking care of the, the chronic folks and having a good knowledge base about drug interactions and, and the laboratory values that you just have to monitor when you're on that many medications. Right. Well, I'm so glad that there are consultants out there doing that important work. You mentioned certificates. Are you referring to a board-certified geriatric pharmacist? That's, that's right, the BCGP, which is very hard to attain, but that is uh, a really good way to knuckle down. Even if you don't pass that test the first time, the studying for it and all that goes into it will help you learn so much about uh, what a consultant pharmacist does. And uh, it's not, you know, I think the pass rate's only 70%. So it's a really tough test. So you, you have to knuckle down and really, really study it. I've heard it's a tough one, but thank you for that reminder that even if it's not passed the first time, we can do it. You can do it. <laughs> okay. If Great. you put your mind to it. That's right. <laughs> Talk to me about your role with ASCP as co-chair of the DEA task force. So that is a position that I have held. I was just trying to go back and look. I, I think I've been you know, involved with the DEA task force for at least 10 years, if not more. And it has evolved over time. I think obviously, you know, dealing with the opioid epidemic and a high focus on opioids, the changing of the schedule of medications, it is really important because there's so many narcotics that are used in the long-term care setting that we have a good handle on how they're used, how they're appropriately used, and how can we teach the regulators how our facilities use opioids? Because so many times you'll have a young DEA agent who is, uh, you know, right out of school, entry-level job, and he, he, he thinks like many that a long-term care pharmacy is, is just like a Walgreens or a CVS, and it, and it just isn't. So it's important to have good relations with the DEA office in, in Washington, D.C. There is a group of us on the DEA that meets with the policy team at the DEA headquarters on a very regular basis. I would say at least quarterly, if not, well, during the pandemic, obviously, we met virtually and didn't come face to face. But there's a group of six or seven of us that regularly go to Washington, D.C. and sit down with the policymakers. The interesting thing about the DEA is they change personnel. They rotate in and out of Washington, D.C. on a fairly regular basis. And so it's important to have those meetings because you're teaching a new group of folks 
really about long-term care. And we go in and we really start from the beginning. We talk about how we receive orders. No, grandma doesn't come from the uh, hospital to the nursing facility with prescriptions. You know, we have to deal with chart orders and we verify them through the physicians. So we, we talk about that process, how we receive orders on a daily basis, how we receive narcotic prescriptions uh, on a daily basis. We do a lot of phone in emergency prescriptions. So we really walk them through the process. And then, then we start talking about our asks, whether it's changes in the nurse agency relationship where, you know, back in 2010, the DEA said, they, they don't consider nurses at a, at a skilled nursing facility to be an agent of the physician. So technically, for a nurse at a nursing home, even to fax you a hard copy prescription, she would need to have a contract with the physician whose prescription that is. I know that sounds ludicrous, but that's this nurse agency relationship process. So we've been working for years to get that modified and changed because it's a very cumbersome process. So, you know, in all actuality, technically, if a facility faxes you in a hard copy prescription before you leave the narcotic at the facility, you need to take possession of that hard copy prescription if there's no agency relationship with that physician. We've worked our way through agency to really trying to entertain how could we get chart orders in skilled nursing facilities recognized as the actual prescription. So over the years, we've talked to them about that and the different ways that uh, we could try to achieve that goal. We haven't gotten there yet. So still a narcotic prescription in a skilled nursing facility still has to be treated just exactly like a narcotic prescription uh, in a retail drugstore. The only change is in a skilled nursing setting, you can partial fill a C2 narcotic for up to 60 days. In a retail setting, you can only do that for 30 days. And even that is a relatively new change uh, for retail. Well, Thank you for that update. And if things change moving forward, you come back and give us an update. I I will. The biggest item we're working on right now, obviously, is opioid use disorder, which is now creeping into our skilled nursing facilities. And we're working with them behind the scenes on some key policy changes that I think will make, make it easier for physicians, prescribers, and facilities to more easily take on those patients that they're being asked to take on. So more to come on that, but uh, exciting times ahead. I think hopefully even this year, we might have a very favorable rule changes that we can get behind on that. Very good. Well, come back, like I said, anytime. Tell me about this other title you have as vice chairman of the ASCP Foundation, your role and the importance of the foundation to ASCP. So the ASCP Foundation is the philanthropic arm of of ASCP. And it is just been my honor to really be part of this. I'm relatively new to the uh, board of trustees of, of the foundation, but our duty is to raise awareness, raise money, and have programs that can further and better the Society of Consultant Pharmacists. For instance, the foundation is where we raise the money to provide scholarships for students to attend the annual meeting. It's where we have the raise the money to have the awards for the poster program that we have at the annual meeting. We currently are working on a grant with USA Aging. And through that grant, we're going to be working with, I know you're going to think this is uh, very interesting, but USA Boxing 
And through a grant through USA Aging and through USA Boxing, we are going to be holding uh, vaccination clinics at all the regional USA Boxing events across the United States leading up to the Olympics next year. And that all came through a grant uh, through the foundation. And so, wow, fascinating! it's always important for an organization to have a philanthropic arm so that we can fund initiatives, whether it's educational initiatives like uh, Help With My Meds, which we're putting together, which will be, I think, if you want to think of it as a, a virtual brown bag event, a lot of pharmacies do have brown bag events at, at uh, centers. We're going to create a listing of consultant pharmacists who'd be willing to, to work with anybody, uh, especially the, the seniors across the country who just have questions about their meds. So kind of think of it as a, a virtual brown bag event. And so we're setting that up through the foundation as well. And so it's, uh, I'm the, the, the vice chairman uh, this year. I'll become chairman uh, next year. And we just have a lot of uh, educational and research initiatives that, uh, that we're working on. So it's important for us to give back to the organization that really looks out for us. And that's really what the, the Board of Trustees with the foundation does. Thank you. I'd also like to hear more about your time as the pharmacy representative on Operation Warp Speed. Again, so blessed through ASCP and, and Chad. He, he asked me if uh, I'd be willing to do that. And of, of course, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, who wouldn't want to be on the forefront of making sure our seniors are well represented when the vaccines were being formulated? We had many meetings about how they were going to be distributed, how they were going to be paid for. It was an exciting time. Uh, this started all the way back in July of 2020, so about three months into the pandemic was our first meeting, and we met uh, uh, every week extremely regularly to talk about what was the best way to get vaccines out to America and treatments out to America as fast as we could. And because of ASCP's involvement, I think it was really critical that uh, nursing homes got the vaccines first, and we were very vocal about that. And I think we were very successful. I think you can see the data will show you that the day we started giving vaccines in nursing homes, you know, within a month, the case rate and death rate in our facilities had precipitously dropped. So it was important to make sure that our our most vulnerable populations were taken care of first and correctly. We worked with several agencies, the CDC, HHS, the VA, state uh, and local um, immunization information system groups, all to make sure we could coordinate and get this done correctly so that those vaccines, when they were ready, could go right right into arms. It also worked that we, we worked on operation speed, not to be confused with operation warp speed, but in October, before even the vaccines came out, if you recall, we had our first monoclonal antibodies that were, were available. And ASAP led the charge on that as well. And we were able to get those monoclonal antibodies out quickly in a speed fashion. I remember us being able to literally doing this by Google Docs. There wasn't any electronic ordering. All the members, uh, member pharmacies and ASAP, we literally would send our order to Chad and staff at ASCP. They would put it on a Google Doc and we would get shipments uh, the next day. And I remember receiving a phone call from a chief medical officer at a, at a facility in San Antonio, Texas, that they had 60 residents 
all with COVID at the end of uh, October that year. And we were able to get them 60 doses of monoclonal antibodies. And he called me the next day in tears saying we had saved their lives, that it was the most amazing turnaround. The monoclonals were amazing. And the fact that we could get them to them so quickly and was just a blessing. And so we were able to do that through ASAP, through thousands of facilities across the country, very quickly. And uh, that's the power of organization. That's the power of our trade association. And really, we taught the government the power of long-term care pharmacy across the country. There's only 1,700 long-term care pharmacies across the country. And all of us worked together. Nobody was a competitor at that time. We were all just trying to do the right thing for those we took care of. And it was probably the most rewarding uh, part of my career, frankly, was the that first six months of that pandemic as we try to put this all together. But I just can't imagine, you know, Chad and staff doing a Google Doc for <laughs> to, to order monoclonal antibodies. And that's how we got it. And we got it out in the field and got them infused and, you know, saved lives uh, one infusion at a time. And it's important, too, to think back on those stories of what it was like for you and Chad's team in the early days and the amazing difference that you made in the lives of patients. It was. Long-term care pharmacies were not granted, as you know, the first tranche of the vaccine. I mean, it was decided that uh, it was uh, easier to get it out through uh, Walgreens and CVS and, you know, five or six other regional pharmacies. But we have a close association with Walgreens and I worked very closely with their team to make sure they understood how nursing homes and long-term care facilities operated. And we talked about all the requirements that they were going to need. And I think it went really as smooth as it could have for those first two, first two or three clinics that were held in facilities. And by the time they were done, long-term care pharmacies were there to pick up the pieces for those, those folks that uh, were didn't want to get the vaccine right away at the very beginning and then saw how that it was working. And I know at Pharmerica, we've done over 100,000 vaccines, you know, since the beginning and another, you know, tens of thousands of monoclonal antibodies and, and therapies. And so as the need arised and needs changed, you know, we just worked together as a, as a team and as a profession to show the world uh, what pharmacy was all about. It's the most proud I've been of our profession in my professional career. When you can have NCPA and ASCP and APHA and ASHP and the compounding pharmacies all singing from the same songbook and working in conjunction with each other, really to save America. 70% of all vaccines came through a pharmacist. So our pharmacists were there, never went home, and did what needed to be done to, to get get our nation through this. And I'm really proud of every single pharmacist out there and every single technician who was there alongside of them because prescriptions don't fill themselves from home. Somebody has to come in and see them and do them and deliver them. You know, our delivery drivers, you know, were there right from day one in the pandemic. We never had an issue with a delivery because they knew how important their work was. So really proud of the industry. It was important. And I know some of our listeners also were in the nursing homes and reaching out as part of the effort. So if that's you driving in your car right now, thank you so much. On the same topic of COVID, what's next on a regulatory change perspective? What changes are on the horizon? I wish I could be, have a crystal ball and say what's next with the virus. What's next for the regulation, obviously, yesterday was the end of the public health emergency. And so 
on June 30th, the biggest change for long-term care pharmacies is we will lose the ability to do consolidated billing for our Med-A patients, which means we can still provide the government-provided vaccine until it runs out, but we could no longer bill for a Med-A patient after June 30th through the consolidated billing process. Uh, Obviously, we can still do it for custodial patients in skilled nursing facilities, but the nursing facility themselves will have to bill for the administration of the vaccine uh, for those patients who are under a Med-A stay. So that's not a lot of patients, and, and pretty much I think we're seeing, you know, 70% or so uptick of the vaccines in facilities. So there's not a ton of uh, vaccines going out still. Still every day, some goes out, but not obviously not like at the beginning. I foresee there could be a new booster this fall. That's quite possible. You know, I think it could just end up being kind of a yearly vaccine, unfortunately, you know, that we'll have to deal with like a flu vaccine. And Uh, Those will all be Med-B vaccines. So COVID, flu, pneumonia, those will all uh, remain a Med-B vaccine going forward. And we'll also likely this fall have a new RSV vaccine for the uh, respiratory syncytial virus that's out there now in in the elderly. So yeah, you know, vaccines used to be, other than flu shots, used to be in the realm of retail pharmacy. And uh, it is now at the heart of what every long-term care pharmacy does now. So, you know, we're formulating plans to do fall clinics in, in our senior living environment. The retail pharmacies are understaffed, as you know, and understaffed in the sense that there's a, there is a pharmacist uh, shortage across the country. And so they don't have the teams like they had at the beginning of the pandemic to go out and do all the vaccinations at these senior living facilities. So we're staffing up and preparing to pick up uh, that slack in the fall, as I know our peers are doing, and flu, RSV, pneumonia, COVID, you're dealing with a lot of shots in arms. And unfortunately, you're not also going to have a combo shot this year. So, you know, it could result in needing two clinics. So it's going to be a busy fall, I think. It, It certainly is. To make it even more interesting, Just earlier this week, we received a new update to the beers criteria. We are recording it in May. Not going to take a deep dive into the content of those uh, new guidelines today, but can you talk to me about how Pharmerica will be rolling out that clinical information to your consultants? Yeah, so we do what we call clinical updates and clinical pearls that go out very regularly to our consultant team and to our team in the pharmacies themselves. Not We don't just limit this information to our consultants because so many times the pharmacists and the pharmacy teams in the pharmacy will also get these questions. And so it's important that they stay just as up to date on the information. My crack corporate clinical team puts those programs together. We gets all the education that's needed, whether it's in a PDF form that they can be emailed. We hold webinars at least three times a week on different subjects for our consultants. They're all recorded and on our intranet so that consultants can go view those on a regular basis. And we just do everything we can to make sure that they are as up to date on all the changing environments that are out there, especially you know, when it comes to the beers list. Well, thank you, TJ, for keeping our listeners up to date. Is there anything that you'd like to share with our audience I haven't asked you about? Maybe not anything that you've asked me about, but I just want to take an opportunity, as you just did, to just thank everybody for all their hard work, everything that they've done 
during the pandemic and, and every day to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. The, the greatest generation is, you know, just so important. You know, I got into this business when my mother-in-law got sick at the age of 53 and she had small cell lung cancer uh, and ended up in hospice. And I got a random phone call to join a company called Pharmerica and do long-term care. And my retail pharmacy days came to an end and I joined long-term care, which I didn't know much about, but I was able to get my family back close to my mother-in-law and be with her and create that family palliative environment that's just so important. And uh, we've all gone through that, but uh, I'm so glad to have found long-term care. It's really, really important work. And I just want to thank all those who are involved in what we do every day and, and just just thank you for, for caring because it's just so important what we do. And uh, if we didn't do it, I don't know who would. So I just want to thank all, all your listeners and just appreciate uh, all the hard work and all that we've all been through the last you know two or three years. And I see the future of long-term care pharmacy and long-term care is very bright. I mean, we're in the midst of the silver tsunami, if you will, of the aging of America. Uh, and it's just important for us to stay on top of it and make sure that we have a, a profession that stays really close to the front lines of taking care of uh, the, the seniors and, and uh, those who can't take care of themselves. So it's just a really bright future ahead. It's a great time to be in long-term care pharmacy and I just, uh, you know, thank you for the opportunity to say that. Well, thank you for ending our time together on a note of gratitude. I, I think that's a great way to finish it. Uh, how can our listeners find you if they'd like to connect or follow up with you? If you uh, Google me on LinkedIn, you can find me. I have a pretty large following on LinkedIn. But if you just have any just questions, concerns, want to talk about Pharmerica or long-term care pharmacy, um, you can just shoot me an email at tj. Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N at uh, Farmerica.com. That's my email. I've wide open. I have an open book. Shoot me a note or tag me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to, to hook up. I very rarely refuse a LinkedIn post and for friend and just happy to connect with anybody who, who wants to, to learn more. All right. Thank you, TJ. I appreciate your time. You bet. Thank you. You're listening to Senior Rx Radio. Brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging.